Now in the, uh, the Lord's Church, <clears throat> there is a tendency, I think, sometimes to neglect the Old Testament. Now, I'm glad to see that Randy doesn't do that. Randy likes to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, and that's a good thing. But it, it has, <clears throat> in some areas, gotten to the point where this, this has been some time back, but uh, uh, I had used an, an Old Testament passage as the springboard into the lesson, and there was a, uh, a denominational person who was visiting with us that day, and they came to me and they said, I thought you people didn't believe in the Old Testament. And I said, what made you think that? They said, well, I just always heard that the Church of Christ doesn't believe the Old Testament. And I said, well, we believe every word of it. I said, we're not under the Old Testament law, but it does serve a purpose. But even some members of the church occasionally uh, I don't think really fully grasp uh, that idea. Uh, I did have a, a gentleman, a member of the church, once complain to me about spending too much time in the Old Testament. I said, what are we doing that for? We're not under Old Testament law. We shouldn't even, even spend time with it. And I said, well, we spend time with it because the New Testament tells us to. And he said, what? I said, the New Testament tells us to study the Old Testament. I said, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, Paul says the things that were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scripture might have hope. And I said, and then you go over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and the first part of that chapter. The Apostle Paul is talking about things that happened to the children of Israel. And when you get down into verse 11, he says that these things happened as examples for us. He said they were written for our admonition. In other words, there are things that we today as New Testament Christians can learn from the Old Testament, not about practice in worship. You know, we, we fuss about denominational people going to the Old Testament to justify mechanical instruments of music in worship. Well, you can't do that. But when you look at the principles that are involved there, and especially the examples, because one of the things that I have found <clears throat> is people haven't changed a bit. They haven't changed at all. Over all the thousands of years that this earth has been here, people have really not changed. Their motivations are the same. Their desires are the same. Their needs are the same. The way they go about things really hasn't changed any. It's the same. So you can look at things in the Old Testament, you can look at things that happen, you can look at why they happen, you can look at the consequences of them, and you can make application of that to us today if you're capable of learning from somebody else's mistakes. If is the biggest little word in the English language because most people are not capable of learning from someone else's mistakes. We have a hard enough time learning from our own. It's one of those things sometimes I wonder, how come that happened to me the third time I did it? It happened the first time, the second time. By the third time, things should have been different, shouldn't they? Well, oftentimes, no, they're not. <clears throat> one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament to look at as far as examples are concerned is found in 1 Kings chapter 13, and that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. It's a long passage. I'm not going to uh, read the whole thing. But basically, you have a man of God who is going from Judah to Bethel. Now, this is shortly after the division of the kingdom. Uh, Solomon had fallen away from the Lord, and God had said that he was going to take the kingdom away from Solomon, but he was not going to take it all. 
He was just going to take most of it. And he wasn't going to do it in Solomon's day. He was going to do it in the day of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. When Rehoboam became king, he decided that he was going to raise taxes, that he was going to afflict the people even worse than Solomon had done, and they'd already been complaining about that. And so the people rebelled. You had the northern ten tribes who decided to cut themselves off from the kingdom. They had their own king, Jeroboam. Now, God had told Jeroboam, he said, if you do what I tell you to do, I'm going to make you a, a great kingdom. And I'll be with you, and you'll prosper. Well, Jeroboam got to thinking, you know, the people are supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship. And Jerusalem's in Judah. And if the people continually go to Jerusalem to worship, they're never going to lose this connection with the southern kingdom. And eventually they're going to decide, we want to be part of that kingdom again. And Jeroboam thought, well, I'm going to essentially be a king without a kingdom. So he thought, how can I prevent this? He decided he was going to keep the people from going to Jerusalem to worship. And he set up two places of worship for them. One was in Bethel, the other was in Dan in the northern part of the kingdom. And told the people, it's too hard for you to go to Jerusalem. Don't bother to go there anymore. I've got places set up for you. We'll institute our our own priesthood. We made these golden calves. These are the gods that led you up out of Egypt. So just stay here. And that's why this man of God is going from Judah to Bethel to cry out against what Jeroboam has done. Now, if you assume, and I think fairly, that this man probably was coming from Jerusalem to Bethel. Jerusalem's in the northern part of Judah. Bethel uh, is not that far north, about 10 to 12 miles, depending on how you look at it. But this man had to go 10 to 12 miles to Bethel, perform the mission that God had given him to perform, and then come back. And as we read a little bit later in the chapter, he says that he's not supposed to eat bread drink water or return by the same way he came. This is in verse 9. So for at least part of his journey, the part that was in the northern kingdom, he wasn't supposed to eat, he wasn't supposed to drink. Now that's a fair little distance to go. But he did it. Now you think about that. Here is a man who, number one, was willing to be used in God's service. God said, go, he went. And you can look for examples of people like that, and they're few and far between. I mean, even Moses. Over in Exodus chapter 4, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And he tells him, I'm going to use you to liberate the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And Moses starts making excuses. Well, maybe they're not going to believe me. God says, essentially, I'll take care of that. I'm not really a very good speaker. God says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of that. Moses goes on and on and on. And finally, he comes to the point where he says, just send somebody else. Whoever else you want to, just send somebody else. Now, I would almost guarantee that any eldership in any good congregation of the Lord's church would say they'd seen several examples of exactly that same thing. We need somebody to do something. I can't do that. Well, how do you know? Well, I've never done it. Well, then you don't know if you can or not, do you? Well, you know, I'm not really good at it. Just get somebody else. It's difficult to find people 
who will volunteer. It's difficult enough to find people who will do it if you beg and plead. But this man would go. He was willing to be used in God's service. You know, in Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 8, God said, I need somebody to go and speak for me. Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. I'll go. Just send me and I'll go. It's rare to find people who will do that. But this man was willing to be used in God's service. He was willing to walk the distance to and from to present the message that God told him to present. And not only was he willing to be used, he was a brave man too. If you think about it, he is essentially going alone into enemy territory. The northern ten tribes of Israel didn't have a whole lot to do with the southern tribes. They were not very happy with each other at this time. Rehoboam was the king and he was not a very good one. So they had nothing much to do with each other and this man uh, was going to present a bad message too. Verse 2, then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. He says there is going to come a time when men's bones are going to be burned on this altar. They will sacrifice the priests who are now officiating here on this altar. I mean, that was a hard message to deliver when you're there all by yourself with nobody else with you. And all of this came true. It it happened about 300 years later, but it all happened. But he comes right in front of the king and says all of this, and the king's the one who's responsible for all of it. Josiah's the one who decided to set up these other places of worship. Josiah's the one who decided to institute another priesthood. And this man is essentially slapping him in the face, saying, God has said everything you did is wrong, and God is going to have judgment against you because of this. He's a brave man. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. He says there's going to be a sign given. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him. And his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. There's another sign given by God. This is not something that the man of God had said was going to happen, but it did. And this was a sign to the people, well, Josiah says, arrest him, better not do it. You better leave him alone. Now, one of the more remarkable things, I think, about this man is what happens next. Josiah says, arrest him. His hand is withered. He can't even pull it back to him again. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. Boy, has his his tune changed. Arrest him. And now he's saying, "Uh, Would you please entreat God for me so that my hand can be restored? 
Now, I don't know about you, but I have a bad tendency to think that if you did something silly and you got burnt because of it, it's your own fault. You should have known better. And at least you ought to know better the next time. So when somebody does something wrong and they suffer accordingly, we tend to kind of sit back and say, well, I didn't have anything to do with it. It's not my fault. It's your fault. You did it. Something bad happened. Don't come crying to me about it. What this man did, I think, is remarkable. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. The king just said, arrest him. And who knows what would have happened to him if they had arrested him. But he entreated God and says, restore his hand to him. And God did it. Now that shows an attitude that we ought to lay up before us as an example. Somebody who is willing to forget an injury, somebody who is willing to put it aside and still do the right thing. We were talking a little bit about that uh, in our, our Bible study this morning. It's hard for us to think that way many times. But now think about this. Over in Matthew chapter five, in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's exactly what this man was doing. Josiah's hand was withered. He asked for the intercession of this man of God. He interceded on his behalf. His hand was restored. He did exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Now, again, I mentioned this morning that, that love oftentimes is misunderstood when you're talking about the, the biblical concept of love. Most of the time, in this particular context especially, it doesn't have anything to do with a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not a, 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 a feeling of affection. Love, agape love, is wishing for someone the highest possible good and working to bring that good about when you can. And that's what this man was doing, and that's what Jesus tells us to do. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Why should we do it? Verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now think about that. That you may be sons or children of your father in heaven. In other words, if you're not willing to do that, you can't be a child of God. That's essentially what he's saying. If you want to be a child of God, then you have to act like God does, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. If you're going to be a child, you act like your parent. You know, Jesus made that point once when he was talking about people being a child of the devil because you act just like he does. He says, act like God that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God does good for bad people. And we're supposed to do good for bad people. That's what this young prophet was doing. He was doing good for bad people. In spite of the fact that it's hard to do, and people from time to time will say, that is not reasonable. That's just not, that's not reasonable. You can't do it. How can you love somebody that's your enemy? Again, it doesn't have anything to do with a feeling of affection. 
It has to do with wishing the highest possible good. What's the highest possible good? They'll repent of their sins, change their ways, they'll be converted, they'll become a child of God, they'll live faithfully their whole life, and they'll go to heaven when they die. What's better than that? That's what you want. It doesn't matter how much of a reprobate they may be. That's what you're supposed to want. And it's not unreasonable. Because God did it first. God does not expect us to do things that he won't do. And he already did it. You think about this. Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. Jesus... And this is something that Andrew's been talking about all through uh, his series of lessons about the, uh, uh, the crucifixion. And, and it's, it's, it's really interesting to sit down and just kind of read a, a condensed account of that, about all of the things that were done. He was insulted. He was beaten. He was called all kinds of things. And then he was crucified. And what did he do? Luke 23, 34, Father forgive them they don't know what they're doing now if God tells us to forgive and to love our enemies he did it first we can't complain we can't say it's unreasonable we can't say nobody can expect us to do something like that because he already did it first and think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7 Stephen has done nothing but tell people the truth He's brought to trial. He tells them the exact truth. He tells them exactly what they need to know. And what do they do? They drag him out to stone him to death. And he says, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. He said, Let them off on this one. That's what he wanted to happen. Now, if they're willing to do that kind of thing, how can we not be willing to do that kind of thing? Just like this prophet did, we're supposed to be willing, overlook a transgression, be willing to wish for others the highest possible good. This man was willing to be used, he was brave, and he was compassionate. And he was uncompromising. When Josiah's hand was restored to him, he was so overjoyed about this, verse 7, then the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I'll give you a reward probably something pretty big. And this man said, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying you shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. He refused the offer. Now this is one of those things, to refuse an offer of hospitality in that culture at that time was a big deal. You had really insulted a person if you refused their hospitality. The king says, come home with me, refresh yourself, I'm gonna give you a reward. And he says, no. No way, no how, not gonna happen. I'm not doing it. And the reason I'm not doing it is because God told me not to do it. And he left. He was, he was not willing to compromise what God told him to do, which is something that sadly oftentimes we are. You know, if, if you've been a member of the church for any length of time, you've probably gotten into discussions 
religious discussions with people from time to time. And the tendency oftentimes is if you've got four or five other people and they're talking about their beliefs and they're all together on this, and you know that what they're saying is not true, you have a tendency to just kind of keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. Don't point out to them that, well, you know, that's not what the Bible says. Because then they gang up on you. You know, it's four or five to one now. But we, we tend to compromise in silence, if nothing else. And we can't do that. And you need to be nice about these things. You know, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, that is true. So say things to people in as uncontroversial a way as you can. Don't be, uh, you know, the kind of person that slaps them across the face with it, but point it out to them nonetheless. And sometimes they'll appreciate that. The place where I used to work, I worked in a machine shop for a, a lot of years. And uh, back some years ago, I don't know if it's still that way now, because I haven't been there in a while. But back some years ago, you could be walking through the shop having a religious discussion with somebody, and most of the people that worked there were, were members of denominations. But you could stop and say, hey, can I borrow your Bible for a second? And the guy would open his toolbox and he'd take a Bible out and hand it to you and say, sure. Most of the guys there had a Bible in their toolbox, which is why it was a good place to work. Even if they were denominational people, at least they were religious, which most people these days are not. But they would come and ask me questions once they found out that I wasn't going to get mad about it. Oh, you're, you're a member of the Church of Christ, or you're one of those Church of Christ people, and I, I've got a question. I've wondered about these, these things for a long time. So ask away. I'll tell you anything I know. If I don't know it, I'll go find out and come back and tell you. And after a while, they got where they didn't ask questions anymore because they already knew what the answers were, and they didn't like them. But controversy is not necessarily a bad thing. Compromise is. We can't compromise. Now that's what the, the man did right. If you're looking for an example, up till this point, he's a great one. He was willing to be used in God's service, no matter you know, what it cost him. He was a, a brave man. He was a compassionate man and he was uncompromising. But now we get into what he did wrong. It says, now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. Then he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he rode on it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there nor return by going the way you came. And he said, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened as they, ate, as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. 
And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. After he left, he was killed by a lion. Now, if you think about that, and you think about it quick enough, you say, that's not fair. He was lied to. How is it fair that this man was lied to and he died as a result? Well, he said it himself, God commanded me not to eat bread or drink water or return the same way I went. God told me what to do. And then some man comes along and tells me to do something different, even if he claims that an angel told him, which one do you do? Do you do what the man told you or do you do what God told you to do? You do what God told you to do. If God wanted him to do something different, God would tell him to do something different. But God didn't. We rely too much on what other people tell us without checking to see what God has to say about it. Now, I've had conversations with denominational people several different times, and oftentimes what's said is, well, my preacher says, and don't point fingers at them because we do it too. I have had discussions with, with members of the church from time to time, and one of the things that used to happen, I've not seen this happen lately, but one of the things that used to happen is you'd have a difference of opinion, and somebody had a couple of books at the house. It was Guy N. Wood's Questions and Answers, two-volume set. You may have a set of those. I've got a set of those. And I don't say having those is a bad thing because they're a good reference. But what used to happen is two guys would have a discussion about something that have a difference of opinion. One of them would go home and check Guy N. Wood's Questions and Answers, and he would come back and he'd say, well, Guy N. Wood said, oh, well, that settles it. Guy N. Woods would have been the first person to tell you that because Guy N. Woods said it does not settle it. Because God said it settles it. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what Guy N. Woods said. It doesn't matter what any preacher says. What does God say about it? I mean, think about it. Am I lying to you? How do you know? Am I mistaken in what I say? How do you know? Believe it or not, I have been mistaken. Only once. But I was mistaken once. But it wasn't my fault. But am I mistaken? Am I lying to you out of profit motive? You know, you find several times in the New Testament it talks about, you know, false teachers making merchandise of you, and there are a bunch of them out there right now. Why do you think that there are so many of these big, huge uh, community churches, the river, and I forget what all the other names are, but there's several of them. They got a lot of people, because a lot of people means a lot of money. And there are a lot of people out there that will tell you anything you want to hear as long as they can make a lot of money off of it. And there are a lot of religious people who buy into that because it's, it, it's easy. I get to do what I want to do. I don't have to do anything hard. I don't have to give anything up. 
all I have to do is be kind of a nice person and love everybody and give them my money on Sunday morning and everything's great. But how do you know? He trusted somebody else's word. You know, Psalm, in the 118th Psalm, verse 8, it says it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to discount everything that everybody says, not in the least. I will listen with respect to anybody's opinion about things religious. And then I'm going to go get a Bible and I'm going to check on them. What did the Bereans do? Acts chapter 17, verse 11. The Apostle Paul has had to leave Thessalonica. The people there were not willing to listen to what he had to say. He had what, admittedly, in the mind of the Jews, were some radical things to say. And they did not want to listen. He went to Berea. They listened with all readiness of mind. And they searched the scriptures daily to see if what he was saying was so. Now that's a good model to follow. They listened, okay, I'm gonna to listen to what you've got to say. I've never heard this before, or this goes contrary to what I have heard before, but I'm gonna listen. But then I'm gonna go get a Bible and I'm gonna check and see if you're telling me the truth or not. It's a good model to follow. Don't necessarily believe everything that everybody says. So I told somebody here not too terribly long ago, one of the most embarrassing moments of my life was in a discussion with some guys. I made a statement and somebody said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I said, what are you talking about? I've heard that all my life. He said, it's not true. I said, what? He said, it's not. And then he explained to me how it wasn't true. And I was sitting there thinking, wow, you know, next time maybe I ought to keep my mouth shut until I find out what I'm talking about before I open it. And everybody's done that at one time or another, but you need to check first. Check and see if what you're being told is true. He put confidence in men. You know, you think about Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, the blind leading the blind. What happens to them? They all fall in the ditch. Don't take somebody's unsupported word for these kind of things. And one thing that he did that was especially bad, I think, he didn't follow through. Now, up until the time he left the presence of King Josiah, everything was fine. But now you put yourself in his position. You have a mission. It's going to be a difficult mission. You've got a distance that you're gonna to have to walk. You're going to have to confront the king and his priests when you get there. This is a dangerous thing. It's gonna be hard, but you've gotta deliver the message that God gave you. And you do. You have a tense moment or two there when the king wants to arrest you, but, but that's all worked out. And then you leave and you're going home. And you breathe a sigh of relief. All the hard work's done. And guess what? He was wrong. It wasn't. He didn't follow through. He let his guard down and he failed. And he died as a result. If he had remained vigilant, if he had remained on guard, he might have thought before he agreed to go with this old prophet. You know, well, this man tells me that an angel said this to him, but how do I know? Can I be sure that he's telling me the truth? God told me what to do. I need to do what God said. But he let his guard down. He didn't follow through. 
You know, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If you knew for a fact that some really rich, really powerful, really influential person was out to get you, you'd be careful. You'd watch where you were going. You'd be careful about who you, who you associated with. You'd be watchful every minute of the day. Guess what? Somebody really, really powerful and influential is out to get you. It's the devil. So you better be watchful and not part of the time. There is no time this side of eternity when a Christian can let their guard down and say, I don't have to worry anymore. As soon as you do that, the devil's got you. You've got to be watchful all the time. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, Jesus said, be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Be faithful, be watchful all the way through. This man had so many good qualities. He was willing to be used. He was brave. He was compassionate. He was uncompromising. But he trusted men when he shouldn't have, and he didn't follow through. He was mostly right, but he was still wrong. Trusted the wrong person at the wrong time and let his guard down. We need to be careful to follow the good example that he set and to be watchful about the bad example that he set because it could happen to us as well. It may be that there's someone here this morning that needs to respond to the Lord's invitation. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you could come forward this morning confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and you could be baptized to have your sins washed away. If you're an erring child of God and you've done something publicly, you need to come forward and confess that sin publicly so that you'll not bring shame and reproach upon the church. If it's something that you've done that nobody else knows about it, confess it to God and ask him to forgive you, and he will. Or it could be that there's someone here this morning that needs to come forward and ask for the prayers of those that are gathered here for some other reason. Whatever your need is, would you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing?